Okay, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Big Questions with Big John. I'm your host, Big John. And today we have another interesting guest to have an interesting conversation with. His name is Jeff Raisley, and he's a lawyer, writing coach, author, editor for Midsummer Books. Uh, he's the author of over 10 books. Is it 11 books exactly, uh, Jeff? It's actually up to 13. 13. So not only is he a, an author of multiple titles, he's prolific. It's changed already from 10 to 13 on my notes. So he's the author of 13 books, uh, including two we should be talking about today, which is uh, one was Anarchist Republican Assassin. And uh, the other one, Polarized, The Case for Civility in the Time of Trump, an Experiment in Civil Discourse. Everyone, welcome Jeff to the show. Thanks, John. Good to be with you. Uh, thank you. By the way, you have a very soothing uh, broadcast voice. I have to say that. It's very bad. Do you have any experience in radio or FM radio or something? Um, no, just just being a guest. But uh, I suppose being a, a lawyer and doing a lot of litigation uh, for 30 years probably made me somewhat uh, conscious about trying to have a voice that was not too unattractive. Although I did get kicked out of my sixth grade choir for having a terrible singing voice. So you don't want to hear me sing. Oh, same here. I'm, um, I think I'm clinically tone deaf and I couldn't carry a tune in a suitcase if my life depended on it. Uh, so we're in the same boat there. Uh, all right, Jeff. So uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, your background. Um, I, I was looking over some of your bio. Uh, you have an interesting background. You've got, I believe, a degree in philosophy. You have a master's in divinity. Uh, is it divinity or ministry? How how would you uh, classify, categorize your master's degree? Yeah, it's called a, a master's of divinity. So um, it was really uh, what most um, minister, the, the degree uh, serious ministers get for uh, professional ministry, mm. which I did not become but I, I really enjoyed it while practicing law, uh, going to seminary. Oh, so, oh, so you actually did go to seminary. I did Christian theological seminary in Indianapolis. Oh, that's, that's interesting. And then you ended up a uh, practitioner of the law. You got your JD obviously. Um, so talk to me a little bit about that. Did you find a common thread going, uh, like, uh, for example, having gone to a Jesuit university myself and, uh, having the requirements for several philosophy and uh, theology courses as part of my uh, core curriculum. Uh, did you find a thread? Uh, I mean, I could see the thread between philosophy and theology. Did Is there a thread in your mind between uh, philosophy, divinity, and the law? Uh, yes and no. Mm. Um, you know, in, in law school, uh, you take courses in ethics and jurisprudence, um, and a lot of the courses are very abstract, where you're, um, you know, learning and arguing about rules, which are usually uh, ethically based, but the, the actual practice of law is quite different, because when you have clients who are paying you, um, they're not particularly interested in ethical behavior. They're interested in winning or right. getting what they want. You know, you're their hired gun, their advocate. Um, and so uh, I actually went to seminary after I'd been practicing law for a number of years and considered making a, a career transition because some of the aspects of law, I just, I, I found my favorite word was icky <laughs> to describe it. <laughs> um, but I, I ended up staying in law, although I, I've done a, a lot of work with churches and I've been a guest preacher mm. in a lot of different churches, um, represented churches. So um, there, there was a, a sort of a professional connection um, but uh, the other interesting thing I found, the more involved I got with churches in terms of people running them and running the denominations, the more I found them similar to lawyers and politicians. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. 
They they often left their ethical training uh, at the church at, at door. The, at the, yeah. <laughs> well, I used to joke uh, when I was in college. I took I used I took a couple of medical ethics courses, and I always thought it was hilarious because I said the only reason I'm taking an ethics course is I could say later in life that I cheated to pass my ethics final. So uh, <laughs> you know, it just it seems like it was good for a joke. Um, but that's that's interesting the way you you kind of phrase that. Um, so was your law, was your time spent as a lawyer? Um, was it what type of law? Was it criminal law, or corporate law, uh, just uh, the old uh, country lawyer with the shingle? Uh, how, how, how did that go? Yeah, well, I started out um, as sort of a, a legal crusader. I worked at legal services organization doing poverty law, social justice, class action law. Uh, then left, uh, joined a, a large corporate firm. I went over to the dark side, oh. um, worked uh, in that firm for a few years. And then three of us left to start our own firm. And from then on, I was in sort of a series of small combinations. Eventually, it was the senior partner in a small firm and enjoyed that the most by far. Uh, it was both more professionally rewarding because of the freedom and also it was much more financially rewarding so and, and then, yeah in, in terms sorry in terms of practice i did anything and everything yeah. um so, so uh, sort of like a generalist when it came to yeah uh -huh. yeah eventually i was a generalist oh that's great now um let's talk about some of your books um the the, the first one i want to talk which i assume is not a, i assume it is a, a work of fiction but it's kind of grounded in in the times and that's the anarchist republican assassin uh book tell us a little bit about that yeah it's a novel <clears throat> and i actually started writing it um during the pandemic and uh the I put pen to paper the day after the George Floyd murder. Mm. Um, and I was just sort of inspired uh, by the chaos um, that the pandemic was causing, the chaotic response of uh, the Trump administration, and then the chaos in the streets by the um, BLM protests uh, following the, the George Floyd murder. And it just was such a crazy time. It reminded me in a lot of ways uh, back in the late 60s, early 70s, when I was in high school and college with uh, Vietnam, civil rights and that whole crazy time. And uh, I just sort of had this vision of um, a guy who was an anarchist um, back in those times, back in the late 60s, early 70s, but who eventually became a very successful businessman and Republican. Um, and then during the pandemic, um, after losing his wife and uh, leaving his business and was kind of stuck alone in his mansion, during the, the lockdown that just watching TV all day, all, right, right. Uh, all the time, he had a psychotic breakdown hmm. um, and decided that Donald Trump was the cause of all of this. I see what you're saying. Now, what's interesting to me is when I saw the title of the book, in, in my mind, I said, anarchist Republican, you're talking about two polar opposite philosophies, right? So I, I'm assuming from that, that it really is about the journey of this character, right? Going from an anarchist that believes in no government and and um, free association and volunteerism and things like that to a Republican, which is basically a statist sort of philosophy, um, and then assassin thrown in. So, so it, do you do you view it as more of a um, a character reveal uh, or a character journey, or is it more? a reflection of where you feel we're headed as a society where people's like people can't even describe themselves properly anymore. It, it is a character journey. It's also a, a mystery. Um, 
because the the book actually the opening scene is the main character jack is in prison Mm. um and it turns out there's this conspiracy uh by the administration the federal uh, government uh to not let his story come out Mm. because he was he became an important person in the republican establishment at least within the state of indiana um, which is it's set in indianapolis so i could describe scenes um uh, and neighborhoods that i knew well um but uh yeah but it also uh, does reflect what i saw as sort of the the breakdown of um some of our um institutions and our culture uh and the um just the the polarization the anger the craziness that we had reached um during the the lockdown the uh protests and the the trump craziness mm. so so even though obviously it's a novel you're kind of drawing a lot from um the environment of say around 2020 2021 right where um the 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 polarization and, and you've got another book I'm, we're going to touch on in a second but did you find yourself like pouring a lot of your own experiences and a lot of what you saw happening around you into this novel? Is it a complete work of fiction in the sense that uh, this is just a character you created? Um, how much of, of your experiences are involved in this novel? Well, I was never an anarchist, um, <laughs> but uh, I, although as a teenager, I, I, anarchy was was certainly um, attractive, and and I think I kind of wanted to live like there were no rules. Mm. Um, but um, I, I actually I dropped out of college and hitchhiked around the country um, in 1972. Uh, so it's a, a kind of a little bit later than when Jack uh, begins his uh, journey into anarchy. But I, uh, I was in a riot down in New Orleans um, during Mardi Gras that mm-hmm. year, which was instigated by some anarchists. And I happened to meet uh, three of them, <clears throat> and I sort of interviewed them. Uh, you know, asking them, who are you? How do you do? And they were basically traveling around the country trying to turn protests into riots. Hmm. Um, and they were a part of an organization. Um, and so I used that and then, you know, did more research into how organizations like that work. And so Jack, <clears throat> as a teenager, goes up to Chicago in 1968 participates in the protest uh the democratic convention um and ends up meeting an anarchist who's turning that protest into a riot and jack gets caught up in it but he unlike me (laughs) became uh so attracted uh to it that he joins this organization actually gets trained in terms of how to do that to go around the country and turn protests into riots. And so I picked a number of um, riots that occurred in the late 60s, early 70s, and injected Jack into them and uh, described how he and his comrades would uh, try to um, turn what were peaceful protests into violent riots. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of the first third of the book is um jack getting involved in that and and living out that the life uh of an itinerant anarchist yeah it's it's interesting to me because you know when you look at it i i've had the complete opposite journey personally right i I probably started out more as a conservative slash republican in my teenage years. And then as I've gotten older, I'm about this far away from calling myself an anarchist. Um, But I think that might be because certainly in popular perception, anarchy and and being calling yourself an anarchist has a negative connotation. 
Um, but for the true believers, they view it as just complete volunteerism and, and, and they're actually quite peaceful. They don't believe in, in rioting and things like that. Um, but it's an interesting perception that that's the way anarchists have always been painted uh, in American history, right? Going back to Sacco and Vanzetti, right? It's, it's, it's people who want to get rid of government, which is an anarchist position. But the anarchist position isn't through the use of violence, uh, or at least most of the philosophical anarchy that I've read doesn't seem to advocate violence uh, to do so. But um, so that's an interesting thing. And by the way, I love the, I love the construct of novel, novels that use historical fact and then weave their characters into them. I think that's always a great technique. And uh, it gives you sort of an alternate history perspective, which I always found interesting. So I kind of like that aspect of, of, of the novel. Um, okay, let's uh, sort of use that to sort of bridge over to your other a book that I found interesting, uh, Polarized, The Case for Civility in the Time of Trump, An Experiment in Civil Discourse. Now, this isn't a novel. This is more of a an essay, an assessment. Uh, how, well, how would you characterize it? Yeah, um, <clears throat> well, it's part memoir because of uh, a forum I hosted on Facebook. And so the description of how I attempted <clears throat> in uh, 2017 to uh, create a forum where people of um, uh, you know very different political persuasions could engage in civil discourse uh, about significant issues. Uh, but it's also a description, <clears throat> a historical analysis with a lot of data of how the United States became so polarized, um, uh, particularly with the, the focal point of the 2016 presidential election. Um, you know, what are the roots of that? What, what were the current causes of what was exacerbating it? And then <clears throat> is there a way forward in terms of can, can we depolarize? So, so the, the book has a, a lot of, uh, sociological data in it, history in it, uh, and then, you know, my own analysis, uh, and then a description of how this um, Facebook forum worked. Now, what's interesting about that is, I, I like the fact that you said you did some research into it, and you cite the 2016 election. But really, I would say the polarization may go as far back as the mid 90s, I would say, personally, just that you could see the beginnings of it, right? Like with the whole clashes between, uh, say, when Jim Wright was the uh, Speaker of the House and he was very <clears throat> weaponized against his opponents. And then when Newt Gingrich took the seat away from him using the same tactics, and then he, you know, and now you have that tit for tat going on by the two major parties. Um, why do you think, or what is your opinion of, what made Donald Trump so viable as a candidate? Because I'm, you know, full disclosure, I'm not, I've said I'm not a big fan of Donald Trump. I, I'm not, a, I'm a libertarian. I have no horse in the race be, between Democrats and Republicans for the most part. Donald Trump did stuff as a candidate that would have previously excluded almost anyone else from serious consideration for office, right? The Whether it was the childish name calling, uh, the even more obvious uh, lack of any sort of real knowledge of how government works. Um, but he got over, as they say in pro wrestling, he got over with the, with the fans, with the, with the voters. So what do you think exacerbated that? Was it the culmination of some sort of Roger Ailes, Steve Bannon plot? Was it, um, was it the so-called mainstream media's, treatment of him because they initially treated him like a joke and they used him for ratings uh or was it just the perfect storm i mean how would you describe honestly what i think historians will say was probably the weirdest election of the of, of this hundred year period in terms of the way it was conducted and the results what's your take on that yeah well you know the I go back to the Civil War in the book and use some data to track polarization. <clears throat> and, and to some extent, it's it's cyclical. Mm. Um, and the, the the data indicates that the 
the biggest ever, of course, was the Civil War. Um, <clears throat> but then the uh, uh, late 60s, early 70s was uh, a very polarized era of civil rights, Vietnam. Uh, and then um, uh, 2016, <clears throat> but you're right, you know, it was kind of trending upwards and uh, we reached a, a new high. And some of the data indicates in 2016, we were more polarized than in 68, 69, 70, um, which is you know, sort of shocking when you think of like, okay, so why? Because mm -hmm. Vietnam War, I mean, tremendously polarizing, uh, eventually it didn't start out so polarizing and civil rights, um, initially very polarizing, but then that, you know, that trended down as the country sort of accepted that. Um, but, uh, you know, so I mean, you can see how these two major issues could be very polarizing. So you get to 2016, it's like, okay, so what are we so polarized about? What what are the issues that are comparable to those? You can't, um, hmm, I'm not really sure. <laughs> and <clears throat> so what it turns out to be is it's more that uh, a cultural, it's almost we want to be angry and polarized and that comes from a number of sources but it's largely uh the the media in terms of starting with am radio then cable news and the the mass media is trying to polarize us because of segmenting markets um and so then you know you find like a, a station a channel uh, our viewers are mostly rural white people. Okay, so now what we're going to do is we're going to really try to appeal only to rural white people. <clears throat> and in doing that, it starts with these differences and then exaggerates them. Right. And, right. and so it becomes more of it's not just it's about us, it's about us versus them. And, you know, the most obvious ones now are that, you know, you look at Fox and you look at MSNBC, CNN, and people that are watching those two, uh, you know, the different channels. And I actually take, uh, <laughs> I picked one just randomly <clears throat> one day and took headlines from right-wing newspapers, left-wing newspapers, CNN, Fox, about the same story and show how you get a different version of reality. And so we're, you know, we're, we're getting more polarized because we're, we have different versions of reality as opposed to when I was a kid, you know, uh, you got your local newspaper. If you were sort of an intellectually inclined, maybe you also got the Times and Business Inclined Wall Street Journal, okay. But on TV, the three major networks basically told you the same news. And so there wasn't much of a disagreement about the facts, whereas now we can't even agree on the facts because we're getting different version of those facts. But then <clears throat> to, to make it very particularized about 2016, I interviewed, uh, I think it was 27 um, people who voted for Trump and asked them, you know, why? And there was a con, you know, some common themes that almost every single one of them. And I interviewed <clears throat> some working class people and PhDs and professional people, um, all of them white. Uh, so, you know, not racially diverse Trump voters, but professionally, you know, economically diverse, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> Trump voters, <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> and the common themes were, I hate Hillary Clinton, she's corrupt, she's terrible, she's a liar, <clears throat> exactly the same thing anti-Trump voters would say about Trump. Number two, the Democratic Party's agenda is socialistic. Uh, the Democrats want to turn this country into a socialist state, uh, and they're going to do that by raising taxes 
increasing regulation and creating more and more federal government agencies. They're taking our freedom away. The sort of <clears throat> idea that, and, and it's certainly based in part, in fact, in, his, in history, that the Democratic Party has been the party that's wanted to create more regulation. The tax thing is actually not so true. Um, but, um, and then the, the third one <clears throat> was that Trump is something new. He's not a politician. He's a businessman. We like it that he's outside of the of politics. You know, he's not a regular politician. And those themes were repeated over and over. Then, you know, I interviewed uh, Clinton voters or any Trump voters about, you know, why were you opposed to Trump? Because, you know, Trump won. So it's sort of like, you know, not that interesting to say, why did you vote for Clinton? Um, <clears throat> and the, <laughs> the, the anti-Trump view was, if you voted for Trump, you were a racist, you're misogynist, um, yeah, you're uh, ignorant. Um, and so um, the, there's just this, you know, the, because the part of it is because they lost, but the anti-Trump voters were angry, furious, and antagonistic towards the people who voted for Trump. Right. So the polarization, you know, it just, it's cycling up. Well, I agree with you, but it's also like, I remember when Reagan got elected, for example, much of the same sentiment was going against Reagan. Uh, by anti-Reagan voters, right? Like, oh, he's just an actor. You know, most people couldn't even tell you that he used to be the governor of California who were anti-Reagan anti at the time. But I didn't feel this sort of animus between like, okay, he's elected, but he's, he's president now. Um, I don't know. I think it's more the to your point, I think the core issue is that we can't even agree on facts. So when, when we had the big three networks, as you mentioned, and there was no cable, there was no internet. Yeah, we all got the same story. And I think by most accounts, all of us can agree that, you know, the Walter Cronkite's, Dan Rathers of the world were, were left of center politically. And I think at the time, you know, if you took a poll of most newsrooms, they were overwhelmingly um, democratic. So while most of us who were paying attention to those things would say, oh, well, their opinions are left slanting. I don't think any of us ever disputed their facts. Maybe we were being naive at the time, right? But like, I don't, like if someone said X, I didn't say, well, they're making up X. You know, their opinion of X, I'll go along with you. I don't agree with, but the facts were, were rarely in dispute. Now we can't even agree on the facts. And, and to me, that's what's disturbing. And I think what leads to the polarization, um, you know, like if you're, if you're a pro Trump supporter, there are certain things you will never admit to. I mean, he literally was on caught on tape by Bob Woodward saying, yeah, I lied about the origins of, of the pandemic. I said it to prevent panic. Uh, yeah, I claimed it was a hoax when it wasn't. Like he admitted to all this stuff on tape because he thought he was doing a good thing. He thought he was sparing the country from panic. You take that tape to a Trump supporter and they will give you a thousand and one reasons as to why uh, it's fake, it's manufactured, it's some sort of George Soros plot, etc. In other words, the basic fact of a tape now is uh, an audio recording is not acceptable anymore. And I mean, not just to make it against the pro-Trump guys, but I mean, when you talk about the pro-left, like there's nothing they will accept anymore because everything is a social construct and everything is this hierarchy that needs to be uh, crushed, you know, to the point where, you know, like as a biologist, the number of cases where you can't identify the gender of a person is, is less than, you know, half, one half of 1% globally. And yet all of a sudden, you have double digit percentages, people not knowing what gender they are, identifying as several genders and whatnot. So to me, it's not even the opinion of what you make of all this and what you do about it, which could very easily fall into a left-right paradigm if that's your choice. 
but the basic facts are in dispute now. Um, is that the fault sort of like to focus on it? Do you think social media is socially respons uh, solely responsible for this? Is it a combination of social media providing a platform for people to express opinions that for decades had been quote banned or ignored by our regular outlets? Cause I, I tend to think it's a little bit of both because if all you're getting is CBS, NBC, ABC, giving you their official perspective on facts, then along comes, forget Fox and everything, but along comes the ability for anyone like we're doing right now to throw a show together, uh, get some opinions out and then speaking to an echo chamber of like-minded people. I think that's what drives polarization. I don't know if that's what you found in your research necessarily, that it, it could just be, because typically speaking, more choice is more freedom, which I find very attractive for people. I, I want people to have more choices. So I don't mind the fragmentation of news sources and everything. But I, I also think we've lost the ability to think critically. Yeah, no, I, I agree with, with everything you said. Um, and on the social media issue, um, the, in, in the research I did, what was really interesting is how social media is designed to increase polarization. Because um, it starts out with advertising, they have algorithms. So, uh, okay, so let's say you're interested in pickleball, mm. which I like to play. Uh, and so I go online and I, I uh, search Amazon uh, for pickleball balls. Okay. Well, then I will get notifications, advertisements about pickleball paddles, right, and right. then pickleball nets, and then pickleball tournaments to play. And so, the and and the very same thing is happening with politics and with issues, so that it it keeps increasing it takes you to a higher and higher level of what they would say is engagement but it's always moving to an extreme so extreme more expensive purchases bigger uh, more expensive items and more so if it's a political issue it will take you to a more and more extreme position in the direction you seem to be pointed um, and that's it's designed that way. Um, so that's a that's a that's a an accelerant in terms of the polarization. But another thing, um, <clears throat> John, you didn't mention that's actually very important is um, local newspapers dying. Hmm. So, for example, as we both agreed um, back in the days before cable, uh, you had the three. Um, sisters uh tv networks giving you news and then there would be some editorializing on it but mostly just news but your your local paper had the news and then it had an editorial page and there were actually more republican editorial uh papers um historically than democrat ones but you know it depends on where you live and a lot of uh towns and cities had both You'd have a Republican paper and you'd have a Democrat paper. But, but it was very clear. Everybody knew the editorial page would declare <laughs> which uh, political party the paper supported. And so uh, that's, you know, that that's the way it was. And so if you didn't, if you wanted to read the news, but you didn't like your Republican editor, you didn't have to read the editorials or you wanted to see what he thought. Right, right. An example I give in my book of just, you know, bringing it down to real people, um, my the house when I was a little kid, our backyard was up against the Barker's backyard. And the Barker kids and the Raisley kids were best friends and we played together all the time. And our parents were best friends. They socialized a lot. The Barkers <clears throat> were ardent Democrats. Um, Mr. Barker was the city attorney for a Democratic mayor. My parents were dyed-in-the-wool, hardcore Republicans. <clears throat> and they absolutely disagreed about politics on every level, including 
local level and they were best friends mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so if they argued about politics they'd argue about them and then they'd go on with life now you get in an argument with and you cut them off the you know the leftist progressive cancel culture uh term uh, i mean it's true that's how we treat people now um we can't stand to uh, you know <laughs> be with our uncle <laughs> who is you know a crazy trumpist or our aunt who's a progressive uh nutcase left you know, i mean we see them in these extreme terms and they upset us and so we just cut them off it's it's interesting to me because um so I, I understand what you're saying, and I really hadn't considered the death of local newspapers as being a contributing factor to this, because especially in the bigger cities, where, which is where I think most of this polarization occurs, or at least stems from, for a lot of reasons, typically they have the biggest <clears throat> melting pot of different ideologies and people and ethnic backgrounds. And, and also that's where major media is, you know, New York, LA, Chicago, um, where you get the national sort of projection of the news um but it's very interesting because i do remember growing up and as i said as i got older and became more libertarian in my views i you know it's the curse of a libertarian in this country to have to think that that the two other parties always claim that you're costing them an election with your political stance right so if you're a libertarian trumpers will come up to you and say well you know you cost us uh, the victory in seven states if you hadn't voted for uh, Joe Jorgensen, you know, and, you know, the Biden supporters will say, like, you know, if you had voted for Biden instead of Trump, you know, we would have had a more decisive victory. We wouldn't be putting up with this stolen election nonsense. And to all of them, I just say, like, well, what makes you think my default is either of your parties? You know, I don't agree with 90 percent of what you say. So I get it. But also, I tend to view both critically. And as you said, because I do that, I can very easily have a conversation with someone who's the polar opposite of me and still consider them a friend. I don't necessarily get to the point where oh, I can't be around them. Most of my friends and family are Trump supporters. I disagree with them on everything. I'll have a spirited conversation. I've never once thought of cutting them off. Um, is the impersonal nature of social media contributing to that in the sense that, okay, I'm not yelling at them face to face. I'm not debating them face to face. I don't get that pathos that I would at a dinner table. You know, even if we ignore the old adage, don't talk politics and religion at the dinner table. Right. Um, but is it, is it the an anonymity of it? Is it the detachment of social media that might be the driver of the, of a lot of this sort of, the cancel culture, as you said? Yeah, because it's just easy to do. Um, you don't even have to tell somebody if you, uh, you know, block them. You just block them. But, um, John, you're somewhat unique uh, and I think admirable because of my work <laughs> for depolarization uh, that you're able to do what you just described of having conversations with friends and family that you disagree with politically and you know then the conversation's over and you move on a lot of people will not do that anymore Hmm. family relations have been damaged because of polarization friendships have ended i mean i i could give you a slew of examples of personal examples not just ones i found in research of friends telling me that they've you know, won't speak to so-and-so anymore. Within my own family, uh, it's happened. Um, People, uh, I won't give names, but uh, a nephew of an uncle who used to be very close, who used to have enjoyable, spirited political arguments, will not speak to each other anymore. And it came out of the uh, Trump-anti-Trump divide. So here we are. That's crazy to me. That's crazy to me. I mean, it like I don't understand how arguing about someone detached from you (laughs) would result in that. It's one thing if we had an argument where you were attacking me personally, you know, or or attacking my character or my family. That's one thing. 
but arguing about someone who at the end of the day doesn't care at all about you and about your situation and i'm not just talking about trump i'm talking about anybody um it, it's mind-boggling to me that that would be the case but uh like you said unfortunately we're here um so i guess the follow-up question to that is what is there a path out of this because once the genie's out of the bottle you can't like roll back social media right so and I'm not even sure that we should, to some extent, being a complete free speech absolutist that I am, I'm not sure that we should. Um, but but do you see a way to get back to at least having critical thinking and polite discourse? Yeah, I, when I wrote the book, um, I thought I did. Uh, I, I no longer do. Mm. I've become really very pessimistic. I think they're the, the, the organization that I um, think is doing the best work in this area is called Braver Angels. And it's a really interesting organization that I supported at first, but I I still get their emails, but I'm, I'm no longer active because I've become so pessimistic about their ability to succeed. But they put on all sorts of interesting programs where they bring red and blue voters together and put them through workshops and sort of teach them and train them how to get along despite their disagreements. And it's actually very effective, but it's just the problem is so massive. And even though they've been ramping up and bringing in more and more people, it's just the the number of people that they can affect is so minuscule compared to the problem. And um, if <laughs> I have a map in the book, which shows <clears throat> um, red and blue uh, uh, county by county, or pre sorry, precinct by precinct. And what is so very clear is one of the most polarizing aspects of modern life is where you live. Uh, mm -hmm. Rural voters are almost uniformly red, statistically, not that everybody, right. but um, predominantly red, urban, predominantly blue. And I mean, the map is, is just striking that, you know, you don't see uh, little blue dots out <clears throat> in the countryside and you don't see little red dots inside uh, city limits. It's just... The cities are democratic, leftist. Uh, the rural areas are Republican, right wing. And um, I, I really don't know with the segmentation of the media and social media that people have access to how you, you know, how you how you reduce that divide. I mean, it's just it's just so, it just smacks you in the face uh, when you see that map and, and you see the statistics. The other interesting, most sort of polarized uh, group of people in a sense, um, or de depending on how you look at it, unpolarized are African-Americans. I mean, mm -hmm. African-Americans um, since uh, <clears throat> the, uh, uh, so at post <clears throat> reconstruction, um, ninety percent historically <clears throat> vote Democratic. Um, there's no other group of people that are so monolithic in their voting patterns. Now, but part of that <clears throat> is the majority of African Americans live in big cities now, which you know a hundred years ago it was just the opposite. But other than that, <clears throat> you know there is. Uh, a, a kind of a mix and mass uh, mesh of uh, ethnicities. There's certainly, uh, you know, like Hispanics tend to vote Democratic, although now there's start showing some trends and moving the other way, but it's like, you know, 60, 40, 70, 30, whatever. Um, <clears throat> white people, same. Working class used to, you know, be predominantly Democrat. Now it's predominantly white, but it's, it's, uh, you know, the big and generation, you know, younger people tend to vote Democrat more than Republican, but the really huge, significant polarization is where you live, urban versus rural. And I, I just don't see how you change that. 
Well, you're right. And and it also it has a compounding effect that once you realize that that's how the geography breaks down, you tend to move <clears throat> to people you agree with as well, right? So, I mean, I live in New York. There's been flight from the city uh, by anyone who even has any sort of streak of republicanism or, or conservatism in them. Or I would even say traditional Democrats. And by traditional Democrats, I mean like your typical uh, pro-union, you know, like those type of guys. Uh, they're put off by a radical leftist agenda, you know, like the AOCs and the uh, Ilans of the world. You know, they're like, well, those aren't my Democrats. Like I could go for a Hillary Clinton, but I'm not going for an AOC. You know what I mean? So even within... Mm -hmm that party and just like with the republicans but but i think to a lesser degree you know it's like okay i can back i can back a desantis but this trump is beyond the normal boundaries of political crazy you know so i it, i think even between the major parties you still even if you were to look at each party you have polarization where you have the extremists of each party who used to be just like the fringe who are now taking course right so i remember say in the 70s and 80s if you were a democrat you cringed every time lyndon larouche would buy time to run for president as a democrat right because you'd be like oh this guy doesn't represent us same thing with david duke running as a republican you're like well this guy doesn't represent most republicans why is he you know why is he co-opting the republican uh banner same thing with larouche right but now that's almost a sense of pride <laughs> Right. So when you have AOC and Trump and Sanders and, and you know, whoever else is batty on the Republican side gets or whoever, uh, Hawley, you know, any of these guys, it's like the more batshit crazy you are within the party, that's the way you want to go, you know. Um, and I have this debate with a lot of people who say, why don't libertarians pick a side? At least they could get elected that way. And once they're in office, they could change. You can't. Once you're beholden to a party in office, they, they control your lifeline. I look at someone like Justin Amash, for example, that I might be the only politician that I still support. Um, he was the only one who had enough integrity to quit the Republican Party when Trump took over. And he yeah. just decided, hey, I'm a libertarian. There's no way I'm influencing Republican politics anymore with this guy at, in charge. So I'm quitting because I don't want any part of this. And he paid for it. He he lost all his funding. He couldn't run for office anymore. Um, yeah, my my dream <laughs> resolution, which I, you know, at actually uh, Amash and a few other people for a brief moment gave me some glimmer of hope that this actually might happen, is that a, a third party is created from uh, traditional uh, non-Trumpist Republicans and traditional um, non-progressive uh, Democrats, and that the, that there's a coalition that forms in the middle that would actually become a viable third party and would force the other two to negotiate with it over legislation. If we had a parliamentary system, that would be so much easier to accomplish. Right. Um, you know, when, when you have a multi-party system, you, you their negotiation compromise happens all the time. I mean, even over cabinet positions, in, in, you know, it's forced and which, you know, Americans, we think we have the best of everything in everything. Um, and which it, it always sort of made me laugh when uh, American lawyers would go overseas and teach these poor benighted uh the people who didn't have our legal system how you really needed our legal system I mean, yeah okay you know have, wait two or three years to get to trial for your yeah pay lawyers thousands and thousands of dollars and yeah that's a great system but okay um, <laughs> um but it, you know that's it, it seems like it's something that ought to happen because you know the the uh traditional the white shoe country club business established republicans are pulling their hair out over trump oh absolutely yeah. and the traditional democrats feel the same way about aoc yes so okay guys here's the solution but i just you know i 
Well, it's that lo- it's the logical fallacy of voting for the lesser evil. And it's the logical fallacy of saying, well, no one's going to vote for a third party. So why should I? <clears throat> and it really takes a fortitude of character to be able to stand up to both those fallacies, in my opinion. So, for example, uh, the lesser of two evils, people don't realize you're still voting for evil. You know, whether you choose to view it that way or not, the very phrase, the lesser of two evils, you do have an option. You don't vote. You stay home. Um, For years, I wrote in my own name. If no one could represent me, I wrote my own name. in, even if it didn't count for anything, it was just my sort of protest or I just stayed home. Um, People don't have the fortitude to do that. And it's funny because if you look at these political polls that Gallup takes or whatever, um, most Americans still have their libertarian leanings. They want as little government as possible. Um, they, they want to be in charge of their own lives. They do believe in, in, in the rule of law for the most part. And yet, when you take those principles and try to implement them politically, you end up with this, well, I don't like Trump, but I hate Clinton. Or I, you know, I don't like Clinton, but I hate Trump. He's the devil. Or I voted for Biden just to, you know, yes, I know he's kind of old and cognitively not on the ball anymore, but guess what? He's better than Trump, you know, and he's the one who has the best chance to win. So when you start, so my new mantra to folks is never vote against someone, only vote for someone. And if you can't do that, don't vote at all. And that's my advice that I constantly give out to people. The other thing before we kind of wrap up, Jeff, is do you think that personal experience is any way out of this? And what I mean by that is I think a lot of the racism and a lot of the ethnic strife that we typically would face in society usually gets overcome through a personal experience with the person that you purport to hate. And what I mean by that is I'll give you a personal example. Um, my parents being Greek carry a hatred for Turks. Now it's an illogical hatred or an illogical aversion, I should say, because they have nothing to do with Turkey. They're from the westernmost part of Greece, which is the furthest geographically from, from uh, modern day Turkey. Uh, they were never subjugated by Turks, their island, their island was subjugated by Italians, just historically, right? But they have that inbred Greek thing. And for people that don't realize that it's sort of like what the Irish English sort of divide would be, right? Or, Or Japanese Chinese divide would be culturally. What it took for my mother to get over it was that the doctor that helped her grandson was Turkish. And all of a sudden it humanized Turks to her and they weren't the devil. They weren't out to kill every Greek, you know, as irrational as that may be when you, when you speak it out loud. And I assume that a lot of people had that sort of experience, say in the sixties and seventies and the fifties, when you had the civil rights movements uh, really picking up steam, it's like, well, I hate black people. I hate white people because they've always oppressed me. But I had this great experience with the butcher down the street, or I had this great experience with a teacher who belonged to that group that I claim to hate. And that's what opens your mind to the possibility that you're wrong. Do you see that possibly helping guide us out of this polarization? Or is social media so impersonal and so overwhelming that you never get to have those experiences anymore? Um, yeah, I, I, I agree that that kind of experience has that effect and my own example i grew up in an all-white community and we had a a few mexican families absolutely no african americans i had a black roommate college first black person i ever knew um you know sports has done that Mm. a lot uh and i've played sports all my life and still do and uh you know, you, you're in a locker room and you're sweating and, uh, you know, you, this is really another human being. And, but the problem now is not only does social media allow you to segment in or uh, silo is the term of art now. Um, but it's also, again, going back to the rural urban divide that if you live in a small town, that's, mostly white and that's that's your culture um and you're comfortable there and you stay there you don't move to a city okay the chances of you 
becoming more politically and culturally diverse, not very high. And the same thing as if, if you live in a, a large urban area and you stay there, um, which I think it partly explains why uh, Blacks uh, vote so in so monolithically. Uh, so, um, and, and it's becoming that, uh, you know, rural whites vote monolithically. And it's just they're 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 geographically, I mean, actually physically separated, and there isn't the kind of mixing. Um, now, you know that there's a whole lot of other people that don't fit into that. That there are people who move from the small. I moved from a small town to a big city, uh, and people move from big cities, and especially as you noted, it's happening more and more since the pandemic. Right. Uh, uh out of urban areas out but if you know if sort of like the the white flight of the 50s and 60s okay well so if all the white people are moving out of this neighborhood or all the republicans in manhattan are moving out of there but they're moving to suburbs they're mostly white republican right yeah so i'm i i wish i was more optimistic but i'm i'm not Okay, that's fair enough. I mean, I, it's not inspiring necessarily or or, 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 or confidence building, but I, I, I have faith in humanity. I know that's counter to what most people think. I think, you know, humanity will persevere. And I think um, people's natural inclination to be free will, 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 will come out on top eventually. All right, um, let's end up the conversation with some silly questions, as I like to do. Uh, we usually don't discuss them beforehand. So I'll start this off. Um, of all writers, authors, people in your life, who's been the most influential to you? Um, my wife. Okay. She's, she's an author, uh, actually published more books than I have. Interesting. Okay, great. And should we know her name uh, and uh, what books to look for? Yeah, her name's Alicia Raisley. Uh, she writes historical romances and uh, writing craft books. Excellent. Alicia Raisley. I guess we could find her on Amazon.com and, and find yeah. some of her books. Okay. Uh, do you have a, a favorite music genre or band that you like to listen to while you're writing? Uh, I, I do listen while I'm writing and, you know, Amazon is one of those things that it's terrible and it's wonderful because I, I have an Alexa and so I can listen to almost any music I've, and, and I have very diverse tastes, but I would say mostly I listen to um, 60s and 70s rock and roll and I yeah, I just, I, I really, you know, that that's when my musical taste developed and, so, you know, Beatles, Stones, who all the, those groups and many, many more, I still love, but I, I was just listening to uh, Johnny Mathis yesterday, uh, you know, beautiful, just beautiful, right. lovely tone. Sure. Very eclectic taste, but basically classic rock. That's cool. Is there a favorite movie or, or genre of movies? How do you unwind? I, um, I have to admit, since the pandemic, I have spent more screen time watching movies through, you know, Netflix and uh, Peacock and, um, you know, all those uh, Disney Plus. Um, I, I do. I like action movies that have a real plot that isn't just a bunch of violence shoot 'em up stuff i like westerns too so i don't have a movie that i watch over and over in fact i don't i rarely will watch anything twice but something that has you know kind of fun exciting action but great characters and a really good plot i'm hooked Excellent. Excellent. Okay. Final thing. I, I understand from reading your bio, you have an interesting story about experiences with Mike Pence, the former vice president. Can you give us a quick sort of recap of, of, of Mike Pence, your experiences with Mike Pence? Yeah. And the, the afterword of uh, the Polarized book actually tells this experience. Um, 
Mike was a summer intern um, for a law firm that I worked with a semi-large corporate firm. Um, and I was on the recruiting committee. I was unfortunately out in Washington, D.C. much of that summer. So I didn't spend much time with him, but I met him. I thought he was a very nice guy. Um, his whole religiosity thing, uh, I didn't experience at that time. Um, and he, to me, he came across as, as sort of a khaki wearing frat boy type, um, <laughs> but a nice guy. Right. The firm, we had six summer interns. The firm made offers to four of them. Mike was one of the two we did not offer. And the discussion was the uh, senior members of the recruiting committee thought he was just not sharp enough. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> so the, what was really amazing for me to think about when he was a heartbeat away from leader of the free world is a guy who, pretty good, but not the best, firm in Indianapolis, <laughs> wasn't sharp enough to become an, an associate in our firm, but he could be the next leader of the free world. So, Yeah. You never know who you're going to meet in life, which is why you should always be polite to people. But uh, let me add a quick question, follow up on that. Did, from what you've learned about um, what transpired on January 6th and basically throughout his service as vice president, do you feel like you have greater respect, perhaps, if not for his um, decision making necessarily, but for his character? Um, do, do, did your opinion change after his tenure as vice president at all? Um, not really. Um, I, you know, I had a few more contacts through politics with Mike over the years when he was governor and congressman. Um, and, and I, we are not friends and I wouldn't say that I know him personally, but just, you know, mm -hmm. we would be at events where he was and so forth. And I think he is a nice person decent human being. However, I also think he was very ambitious, has wanted to be president, as so many people that get into politics have. Um, and uh, at first, I really questioned whether his whole evangelical Christi Christianity was authentic or not. And I think it probably is, but I also think that He's used it um, and to some extent abused it, especially when he was governor. But absolutely, he did the right thing in a critical moment in history. And it, it was not the easiest thing for him to do. Uh, it, it was clearly the correct moral and legal thing to do. So, you know, sort of holding Mike Pence up as this great, you know, courageous moral character because he did his job i don't see that but he did do his job and it was a difficult position to be in um i think the vast majority of human beings would have done the same thing he did so i don't think it means he's really remarkable uh you know in some uh, you know moral character that we should laud but <laughs> i'm really glad he did the right thing and that's a great and that's a great way of putting it. All right. Jeff Raisley, thank you very much for joining me today on the show. Uh, give us a plug for your book, the latest book, and uh, where people can find out more about you. <laughs> well, I'm working on another book right now, and it's really interesting. You mentioned uh, the uh, uh, least of two evils because that's one of the uh, chapter uh, titles. Cool. And I cite Hans Morgenthau uh, did, wrote a whole book on the politics of the least of two evils. So that, that was neat. But uh, my last book is a novel and it's called A Pickleball Soap Opera, Love, Murder and Pickleball. And it's actually an international spy story, which uh, a group of pickleball players in Ohio get pulled into. Okay.
So uh, give us the title of that book one more time. Uh, pickleball, a pickleball soap opera, love, murder, and pickleball. A pickleball soap opera. Okay, so go on Amazon.com, check out the pickleball uh, novel of Jeff's. And uh, Jeff, once again, thank you for joining us and for everyone else. Join us again on the next episode of The Big Question with Big John for another interesting conversation with an interesting guest. See you, everyone.